Good morning again, everybody. We are going to be in Philippians chapter 2 today, verses 1 through 4, if you want to find that. And uh, I really appreciate the word that Dick gave us this morning. Uh, We can hear that within our own denomination, this idea of being unified matters. We're going to be talking about unity really over the next three weeks as we unpack a little bit of Philippians chapter 2. This idea of unity, though, uh, gets thrown around certainly in the world we live in, in the political sphere. We live in the United States, of course. We like some sense of unity that comes with that. It's It's a concept that we like. Uh, quite often, and in the church we should like it a lot. Uh, And so we want to look at what Paul says when he says that we are united with Christ in Philippians chapter 2. Now as we do that, I want to actually start because uh, Philippians, the part of Philippians chapter 2, we're really only covering the first half of the chapter actually over three weeks, but it revolves around a creed that happens right in the middle of it. Um, And that creed, we'll see it in a moment, we'll actually say it in a moment, Um, There are some 40 creeds in the New Testament alone. Uh, Some of them are really short. You you just miss them, but they're in there. And we, as a church, have a tradition of when we take communion together on the first Sunday of the month, we typically say a creed. We've said the Apostles' Creed quite a lot. Uh, You may notice that over the last uh, year plus, we've kind of just had a select small grouping of creeds. Uh, There's intentionality to that. Like this year, we only have four creeds that we're planning on saying all 12 times we take communion so that we hear them a number of times and repeat them a number of times. So we'll say uh, Romans 10, 9. You know, if you believe with your, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a creed right there in Romans. Uh, We'll do the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. I won't recite all of those for you right now, but we'll do both of those. And then Philippians 2, really 6 through 11 is the creed, but we throw in 5 as an added bonus. We'll say it here in just a moment. Uh, that that's a creed right there in the New Testament. What's a creed but a statement of belief? That's all it is. It's really a snapshot of of what matters to say at that time about what we believe. Um, It often teaches, but more importantly, a creed reminds us of what it is that we believe. And creeds have a sort of an apologetic effect as well. We can easily communicate what we believe, and if challenged, we can easily kind of fall back on that and say, no, 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 I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Those, those kinds of things. It's right there in a packaged, memorable way. Creeds also, though, can bring with them a sense of unity. We're not just saying these creeds as the living church. We're saying these creeds with the church that has existed throughout history and will exist in the future. We're joining in participation with that, uh, with what God is doing that way through his church. So, for instance, uh, about the Apostles' Creed, uh, the church historian Justo Gonzalez says, When I recite the Apostles' Creed, I'm declaring myself part of the countless multitudes throughout the centuries who have found their identity in the same gospel and the same community of believers. A multitude that includes martyrs, saints, missionaries, and great theologians, but where in the final analysis, all are nothing but redeemed sinners, just as I am. We say the creeds that way when we say them. And so what I want to do this morning, I want to say the the Philippians 2 creed. Next week, it'll be the focus of the sermon. Uh, Brother Schwarting's going to bring that. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, but I want to say that, and then I want to look at the verses that precede it as our focus this morning. So let's, it'll come up on the screen. Let's say it together this morning. There's power in speaking this together. It says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant 
being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I, there's something powerful about speaking it together, too, and saying the creeds together. I know last week when we were worshiping together, we were saying names and character attributes of God, and it was loud and pronounced in here, and it was just a joy. It was one of the highlights of my week. This is a highlight of my week that we say what we believe together uh, in unity. Now let's look, though, at the verses before that. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4, and see what Paul, how Paul leads us in to these verses in 5 through 11. Paul says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. This is the word of the Lord. And one of the things that Paul does, obviously the, the strength of what we read here is going to be reinforced and magnified by the, the creed. So I don't want to get there because that's for next week. But I want to suggest to you this. What Paul is actually saying here is sometimes not what we always read or where we always end in our thinking here. Um, Paul is saying something much bigger than what the, I think at surface it seems that he's saying. Um, it's easy to make unity as the body of believers land simply on, not, uh, on just caring for one another, and that's what unity looks like. As long as we care for one another, we're doing good, and we have the mind of Christ. I would suggest to you that that is bedrock. It's not less than that, but having the mind of Christ is way more than that, that Paul is getting at. Yes, we absolutely should have that compassion and tender mercy and care for one another. We should never do less than that. But there's a lot more than that that Paul's getting at, even in these verses. Interestingly, as I was reading through commentaries this week, Max Anders, who's a good commentator, uh, I think illustrates the point I'm making here that we can sometimes land a little too early when it comes down to it. So he says in his commentary on this particular passage, he says, the main idea here is that Jesus' example of humility challenges Christians to live a life of unselfishness and unity. Here, here, we can agree with that. I think that's absolutely what it says, but I think it says more. He says the supporting idea is if you want to make God happy, be unselfish with one another, treating others the way you would like to be treated. And I agree. The golden rule is basically what he's saying there. That's, that's in the text. Yes, absolutely. So we're not saying less than that. We're saying more than that today. But it is like this when we, when we read this text and don't kind of get the fullness of what Paul is saying. It's sort of like if I told my family, hey, we're going to take a trip to Paris. And then we went to the airport and got on the plane, and it seemed like it was a shorter flight than it should have been, and we didn't seem to go over the water anywhere, and we get out, and it says, welcome to Paris, Texas, in the airport. They're going to be disappointed, right? We landed the plane too early and went in slightly the wrong direction. I feel like that's what we can do here. So what is Paul actually saying? 
The goal, twofold, is to have the mind of Christ. Let's start there. And the way we say that in our, our church is we are disciples who make disciples. We are disciples. We need to have the mind of Christ. We follow Jesus Christ so that we would be like him, so that we would be transformed into the image of Christ. That's why we follow. And a lot of people in our day and age have respect for Jesus. You know, in fact, you can get into a lot of conversations with people and they'll talk about Jesus, good moral leader, all that kind of stuff. Uh, usually, my, my experience is they haven't read anything Jesus has actually said, because when they do, they change their opinion a little bit, like, oh, Jesus said that? They didn't, they didn't realize what he said. But what does it mean to have the mind of Christ? What does it mean to have the mind of Christ? Well, Paul gives us some ideas right here. He gives us the words we, we need to understand where he's going. He says, well, uh, Jesus is encouraging, he's comforting, uh, unifying, tender, compassionate, and we can probably, if we say, well, we follow Jesus, we can say, those are all great things. I'd love to have all of those qualities too. I get that. If we're the body believers, we want to have that. He also says uh, that Jesus is humble and selfless. Now there we can get a little more tripped up sometimes on the whole humility and selfless thing. You know, a lot of us can be selfless, but humble, humble is a harder one, right? Sometimes our attitude can be, I, yeah, I guess I could be humble if I get some credit for it which of course doesn't work, right? And, and the conundrum of Christian humility particularly is, as one of my professors years ago pointed out, he said, often you see this in history, Christian humility kind of looks like this. No, 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 but you're also kind of like, but bring it on a little bit, you know? Uh, humility's tough, but that's what Jesus is, and that's if we have the mind of Christ, we are humble. But here's the thing, why I say this is bedrock and why I say Paul is getting it more. If you look in the world around you, you can see people who don't follow Christ that have some of these characteristics. In fact, could have a number of these characteristics in one way or another. You can look around the world and you can see that as the church, we're incredibly good at putting together relief organizations, non-governmental organizations, those kinds of things that do relief around the world. But there are an awful lot of even larger budget organizations that do relief around the world and give compassion and tender mercy to people in what appears to be a selfless way. That doesn't negate what Paul's saying. That just says Paul's getting at something more, much deeper here that's much more important than simply those things. Those things are the basics. What's the goal of, of being united with Christ and having the mind of Christ then if it's not simply those things? Well, let me point out something, and this we won't get in the weeds on this, but if you're familiar with theories of the atonement, we won't get into really any of them except one right now. But the theories of the atonement are explanations of when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, the actual events that actually happened, when Jesus died and rose again, what did he accomplish through that? What, what, is, what is the at one meant bringing together that relationship that was broken between humans of God? What was accomplished? How was it accomplished? You get really deep in the weeds. It's really interesting stuff, and it's deep stuff. But one of the theories that still reigns as uh, an only theory in some wings of the church is what's called the moral influence theory put forth by Peter Abelard. And that is that what Jesus did on the cross is simply a demonstration of divine love, the greatest demonstration of divine love ever. And we are supposed to emulate that love. And that is what is meant by atonement. Now, we can acknowledge that absolutely that was the greatest demonstration of divine love on the cross. But surely it did more than just give us an example to live up to. Surely it did more than that. In fact, the New Testament points to that. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, right? In Christ, we become new creations. We don't just look like new creations, and it's not 
because we looked at Christ, we become, it's in Christ we become a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. But even more than that, if we take this 2 Corinthians passage and bring it into what Paul's saying here, we're not just new creations, we're ambassadors of his kingdom. That's the direction Paul's actually going. Something new is created in us through Christ that allows us to have these characteristics. And because of that, we become a part of a new group of people who are being created to do a new thing in God's new reality. That's something far deeper than just being kind to one another. That's something greater than what's going on there. So to have the mind of Christ is not just to have the elements of Christ sort of on us, the clothing of Christ, which Paul talks about in Colossians, but it's actually to share the mind of Christ with the world around us because we are being transformed into his image, because we are citizens of his kingdom now in a world that doesn't walk at a kingdom pace. That's where Paul is going with this. It's not just being good. It's not just encouraging. It's preaching and demonstrating the kingdom and inviting others into that kingdom so they would become a new creation. That's where Paul is going, right? So we can even see that in the language we sometimes use. I'm not a volunteer in the kingdom of God. I'm a servant of the king. There's a difference there. Um, I am not uh, an individual Christian. I'm an ambassador of Christ with other ambassadors of Christ taking out the message of the kingdom and calling others to new life in him. And Paul uses examples in, in, his, uh, in, the, in his letters about uh, what the church is, the flock, the family, those kinds of things. But the body of Christ is one of those strong images that Paul uses of what the church is supposed to be. And if we are ambassadors of Christ, if we're being transformed into the image of Christ, then as the body of Christ, we function like kidneys and like arms and legs and eyes and ears in the body of Christ. But sometimes if, if it's just about the being good and that kind of thing, then we end up actually not being those essential parts, but we end up being the Lee Presson nails of the body of Christ, right? We're pretty to look at, but we're gonna fall off eventually. We have to have the mind of Christ so that we can share the mind of Christ, so that we can call others to become a new creation through him. I can't do it, only Jesus Christ can do that through his spirit. And then become citizens of his kingdom, which is what we are. But what happens if we only go halfway? I think this is, we can see the problem erupt in the text. If we only go halfway, Paul earlier, back in Philippians uh, 1, I forgot to read it, but we won't read it now. He said, you know, some preach Christ out of rivalry and envy, others out of love. Doesn't really matter as long as Christ is preached. But you know what? It's classic Paul. It actually does matter, he points out later. Um, it's so, so Paul, he does that. It doesn't matter, but actually it does matter. Um, you know, I'm glad I didn't baptize anybody, but I did baptize three people, but it doesn't matter. You know, that's Paul. That's just how he writes. So Philippians 2 verse 3, if we look at that verse, it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, Paul says. What happens if we only go halfway as the, as the body of Christ to kind of try and put on the mind of Christ and do all the sort of things that we talked about, the encourage and all that, but don't actually go and share the mind of Christ with others. What happens if we're only going halfway as God's people? Well, then do nothing out of uh, rivalry or out of uh, selfish ambition, my translation has. If you look at the, uh, the original Greek on that, it's working for day wages is what it really is 
to have self-conceit is working for just what I can get right now. So what happens is if we live, only go halfway and live only with sort of trying to put on the mind of Christ, but not actually sharing the mind of Christ and exemplifying that as his people, then we end up, rather than giving God glory, we actually steal God's glory and keep it for ourselves. We're working for day wages is what we end up doing. We do good works for one another, and that feels good enough. It gives us all the feels. We feel good about it, and that's it. Our effort is the end in itself at that point. And Paul says, that's not enough. That's not who we are as the body of Christ. We're not working for day wages. If we do that, then we become too easily satisfied. We are too easily satisfied with our faith in Christ sometimes. And sometimes we're so easily satisfied that our faith in Christ ends in our morning devotions rather than begins in our morning devotions. We're so easily satisfied with faith in Christ that our, our worship is the end of our faith, not the beginning of our faith all too often. We are too easily satisfied with the faith in Christ that ends in knowledge instead of service as well, and a, and a faith in Jesus Christ we're too easily satisfied with one that ends in service rather than being a servant of the king. So we do the good things, we feel good about it, and we think, what's the minimum I can do for the maximum amount to feel good, and we end up working for day wages if we're not careful. We steal God's glory instead of giving him glory. The second thing that we do is that if we only go halfway on this stuff, rather than being a mission outpost as God's people, we too easily make the church a country club, a family reunion, or a closed event. You know, just pay your dues, you're good to go. Or it's a, a family reunion every week where there's no room to add other people, even though we're trying to be really friendly, but the family's already kind of closed. We know who's in and who's out already. Or it just becomes a, a closed event. We're good on our own. We got everything covered. Thank you very much. I know Stephanie, my wife, and I uh, have visited a lot of churches in our marriage. When we were living up in Vancouver, British Columbia, we visited a lot of them. You've heard stories about some of those. Uh, one of our, our sort of favorites in the, the Hall of Fame one is one where we visited a almost closed brethren church that was around the corner from our apartment. Um, and so they would evangelistically put flyers out about every six weeks on people's windshields all around the neighborhood. So we said, okay, let's go. You know, that sounds fun. We, we attended an evening service regularly. So we went to their morning service and uh, we were, I was woefully underdressed. Stephanie was only partially underdressed for it. And all, there were two rows of chairs in a square in the middle. They were sitting around the elements of communion. They were all ready to go. We ended up sitting in the youth section, all of which seemed checked out by what was going on way in the back of the room. That was the only place available. I mean, it was far away from the action. Um, and it felt like going into a different time and nobody said a word to us for the whole hour we were there. And it was, it was one of these where you could clearly tell we're outsiders walking into this thing. There's no room, literally no room for us to enter into this. So a heart that reached out, but they already had it covered. They only went halfway. The, the other word that Paul is using here, it's, a, it's a vain conceit is what my translation has. Do not do this out of vain conceit. 
Uh, some of the older translations, King James has vain glory, which is just a great word, pride, vain glory. That's, uh, that gets at the heart of what Paul is saying. And Paul earlier said, hey, you know, if however Christ is preached at a rivalry or envy, I said he now tempers it. This is where he tempers it. He says, this isn't okay. You can't preach Christ this way. That's not actually Christ. It's not what disciples do. And you can think to yourself of New Testament examples of people who preached, we'll just say righteousness, out of vain glory. Who comes to mind? The Pharisees. They were incredible at preaching righteousness out of vain glory. You've got a closed club, a powerful club, a puffed up people. They're humble. Bring it on. Tell me how humble I am kind of people. Their, ex their exclusivity was the marker for them. And they judged other people, but they did not care where the other people stood with God, only where they stood with God. A closed club. They're trying to put on functionally the mind of Christ before Christ. They're trying to put that on, the mind of God in the sense of righteousness, but they have no sense in taking out the mission as is the second step. That's what Paul is saying here. If we don't have those things, then we either steal God's glory or we close the community off and we just do the good stuff without inviting anybody else into the mind of Christ, which isn't the fullness of the gospel at all. In fact, the natural reaction to having the mind of Christ is that you want to share it. That's the natural fruit of it. And so it's interesting that when Paul uses the language of if to talk about the fruit, if you have any encouragement, if you are, have any comfort, if any common sharing, that word if, he's using it rhetorically and it could legitimately and logically be translated since. And there's a huge difference between if and since, right? If you're in the neighborhood, you could stop by and visit. Well, since you're in the neighborhood, you could stop by and visit. There's a huge difference, right? If is, 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 okay, if you're here, but since, if you were in the neighborhood and you didn't come to visit, I have different feelings from since than if. If you're in the basement, could you clean the litter box? Since you're in the basement, could you clean the litter box? Different things, right? Philippians 2.1 actually is really a key to this whole thing, in my opinion. Paul says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. The word encouragement there, parakaleo, is the root word. It's the word we use for spirit. Have you ever heard paraclete used for Holy Spirit? It's used in John 14 and 15 for the spirit. It's used in 1 John for Jesus Christ and his uh, spirit at work in us. When we are connected to Christ, we become new creations to be as Christ to other people. You have any encouragement with Christ, then we take that on and we become that to other people. We don't become Jesus, but we become like him, the representation of him to others because he is growing in us. We are his disciples, putting on the mind of Christ that we would share the mind of Christ. Since we are in Christ, we can't resist becoming his disciples and making more disciples. That's what Paul is saying here. The church Interestingly, I don't know if you've thought about this. The church is an institution that actually exists for the people that aren't here. We exist for the people that aren't here yet. Our job is to be unified, to put on the mind of Christ so that we can look out and call home those who don't yet have the mind of Christ. Call them home to become new creations. We must have the mind of Christ to share the mind of Christ. Let's pray together.
Lord Jesus, have mercy on us when we sometimes don't get it. Have mercy on us when sometimes we're too satisfied with playing church instead of being the church. Have mercy on us, Lord, and call us back to that true commitment. Call us to fruitfulness that puts on your mind and then looks outward and says, now who needs this? That puts on your mind and walks so close to you that we can't help but see the people who are reaching out to touch the hem of your robe all around this city. Lord, help us have your mind that we would share your mind. That we would not look out on this city and miss those people who need you, but see them and call them home to the one relationship that matters more than any other, to the one we were all designed for, to be in relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ. This we pray in the name of that son. Amen.